Assalamualaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every evening from 6 to 7 p.m. Central. Now, what's important is, since you are just joining, you need to make sure that you are following and liking our pages on social media. Stay connected. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And then, next thing you want to do is to make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. So wherever you get your podcast, don't take my wonderful music away. He took it away. <laughs> wherever you're getting your podcast, if that's iTunes, tune in. SoundCloud or Google Play, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, I am pleased to have joining me in studio the one, the only, <laughs> the one who needs no introduction. But because Let's it's go radio. without the introduction, right? See if anybody recognizes me. <laughs> but because it's radio, right, we have to do it. If this was television, you know, I wouldn't, it would be no, no need at all. But no. In studio joining us this evening is Omar Muzaffar. Uh, he is the Muslim chaplain at Loyola and a film critic for RogerEbert.com. He's also uh, the author, the writer, journalist for Just Relations. And that's a column in the Chicago Sun-Times. Assalamu alaikum. Well, like, oh, you beat me to it. All right, that's, that's <laughs> generally my line, but it's okay. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, you wear you wear a few different hats, and and I always enjoy talking uh, to people who who kind of shake things up, you know, in mm-hmm. multiple spaces. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that could be one way to describe me, you know, <laughs> for good or bad. You know, you know so we're just going to be just kind of jumping around. Yes, sir. Right. Um, first off, um, as, as a writer, uh, and I think the the column the the some of the columns I've seen that you that uh, uh, on social media, on Twitter in particular, you put it out there, you put the column out there, and at the very top of it, it's always tear me apart. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> T- tell us, how, how did that happen? Well, I mean, <clears throat> uh, because just about everything I write is, is opinions, and uh, I suppose at one level, I'm always looking to, to improve upon and to refine my opinions, and... And so uh, uh, I, I like the unsafe or the vulnerable approach of saying, okay, here's my stance, and pick it, take it apart, find any holes that you can. And so when people do engage, which more often than not doesn't happen, but when people do engage, uh, I do often learn quite a bit, you know, uh, either of I learned some blunders that I had in, in my own logic, or I'll just learn about a whole new world that I had no familiarity with. Hmm. Now, has that always been your process for writing? I mean, maybe not necessarily in a public stance, mm-hmm. but writing is something that's very personal uh, for most people, especially um, well, our opinions, right? Those are some of the things that, that, that we really hold, hold dear and, mm-hmm. and put a lot of stock into. Well, I mean, uh, interestingly, I, uh, I wasn't growing up, I wasn't ever much of a writer or a reader. Uh, in fact, uh, in school, I had so much struggle writing prose that I would have to actually write my, my papers in the form of a script or a play because I, I literally couldn't write prose. It was too hard for me. And even to this day, you know, I'm in, mashallah, my upper 40s, I still struggle tremendously in terms of reading. 
Um, uh, I'm older than when they started actually testing for those things, mm -hmm. uh, but I suspect I'm probably dyslexic or something because uh, to this day I, I struggle quite a bit, especially with fiction. Um, less so with with prose or nonfiction, or I should say less so with nonfiction, or less so with with uh, reading plays or scripts. Uh, but that it is today this day a huge struggle for me. So I, you guess you can say I've overcompensated by just working and working and working at it, and mm. and just trying to, you know. Uh, just trying to compete with whatever level I think I have to be at just to be coherent. Hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the, the dangerous things about, um, like flattery, it, it can be dangerous, right? Yes, sir. Right. Um, so I say this with all sincerity, mm -hmm. right? And not for the sense of just offering flattery, mm -hmm. empty flattery. But you have been, from, from my own experience, mm -hmm. what I've seen, one of the most unassuming accomplished persons mm. um, that, that I have seen, right? Because you don't introduce, introduce yourself with a title. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wonder, I wonder if that's just a, a Chicago thing, a Southsider thing or something. You know, yeah. just uh, uh, I think part of it is, is that we're from a city where we tend to really elevate our celebrities you know, yeah. whether we're talking about Michael Jordan or Mike Ditka. Uh -huh. And and so I think it's it's easy just to be, uh, so to speak, a, a regular guy. It takes less effort, too, because, uh, I mean, I wear jeans, and this is no exaggeration, just because I don't have to iron them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think I've been in the company because of the various things that I do. of so many people who just seem like they're always in performance mode that yeah. – you know, I, I don't like wasting time. And some of it might just be turning into a grouchy old man that, you know, I just like things that are real, you know, with all their complexities and mm -hmm. and edges and all that stuff. Yeah. With the with the amount of exposure um, that 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 you have to people and the people have to you, mm -hmm. um, particularly I won't say particularly, but within the realm, let's just look within the realm of uh, explaining or representing uh, Islam, representing mm -hmm. Muslims. Um, What challenges comes with that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, quite a few. Number one is the simple fact that, that uh, I'm representing the divine and I'm, I'm answerable to the divine and relate to that as I'm representing the prophet, peace be upon him, by extension the companions, by extension the, the whole ummah. That is on its own uh, a huge, huge responsibility. Uh, I have to practice what I preach, which is easy if, if you don't preach much. So if you actually pay attention to all the things that I talk about, I really speak very, very limitedly about, about a bunch of things um, just to, so I can at least be, have some integrity in terms of, of what I'm talking about. Uh, another thing, of course, is the fact that even though, I mean, I was born in, in Pakistan, but I was, I've been in Chicago pretty much my whole life. When we first came to the States, we moved to Riverdale. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, um, since we, that was like around 1972, 73, been in Chicago ever since. And, and so even to this day, over 40 years later, uh, most people still see me as an outsider. And so uh, when I'm talking in some locations, uh, the first thing they're going to see is, of course, you know, the color of my skin, my name. And, and sometimes for a lot of people, that's still a non-starter. Uh, but that's also, sorry, that's also uh, my norm, right? I mean, 
Uh, I don't know anything different. Uh, I've never lived in an environment where everybody was Muslim or everybody was Pakistani or something like that. And, and I mean, I think as minorities in our society, we're used to the norm being, you know, the minorities. 99% uh, of my life outside of the house, you know, I'm one of, if not the few minorities in, in the room. Like here, here's there's three of us, mashallah, three Muslims. Right. Outside of being in an Islamic center, I mean, that's not my norm. Right. And I teach Islamic studies. <clears throat> you know. So, <clears throat> I mean, I think so, the, the biggest challenge is, of course, just to, to, to maintain uh, integrity and not to fall into the trap of, of looking at myself as, as a victim of something else. Hmm. You know. is, is there an awareness of this, um, of exceptionalism or being the, because being in, being in spaces where you may be the only or the first interaction that someone has had with Muslims, mm -hmm. um, that there is this burden often that minority um, uh, 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 individuals may feel where they feel like, you know, like I think you just mentioned, you know, having the burden of representation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, I can't imagine how different my life would be if my family didn't migrate over here. Uh, uh, whether it's my father migrating from, from the eastern end of India, from Bihar to, to Karachi, or from Karachi to here. Uh, uh, again, this is, this is all that I know. Right. Uh, but because, you know, I'm the, the square in, a, in an environment of circles, uh, I don't know how to be, so to speak, normal. Mm. And I think that's pretty much everyone who's ever existed. But the point is that, you know, the microscope is on us. Uh, much more than it is on, on other people. And because I do have some gifts, you know, mashallah, in terms of, of, of speaking uh, or, or just even height or whatever. And by speaking, I'm not talking about being a, an orator. I'm just saying just being able to, to speak, you know, somewhat clearly. Uh, I've always felt a big burden of responsibility um, to, to use what I've been gifted with and then to, to apply it for whatever way for, for my akhirah or to help other people in their akhirahs, their hereafters. Okay. So one of the things that comes up, I think this is a really easy segue into talking about media representation mm -hmm. of Muslims. And when we say Muslims, one of the things that I'm constantly pushing back on is this idea that when people hear Muslim, they think monolithically. Of course. Right. Um, what is your what are the things that you look at? As a as a film critic, what what is your assessment right now of mm -hmm. the representation of Muslims? Well, I mean, I think <clears throat> in terms of of the depiction of Muslims, nothing has changed in in our lifetimes in the sense that the default depiction of Muslims is, of course, something related to violence or savagery. I mean, that's the default depiction of people in col of color in general, whether we're talking about African Americans, Latinx, right. um, or, or or Muslims across our different ethnicities. Uh, uh, and so included included in that savagery is hyperviolent, hyper hypersexual, hyperdominant, uh, all those things. And when I'm teaching this material in class, I, I ask students to uh, to think of how we define ourselves as America, and then look at how we define uh, Muslims, how we imagine Muslims, how we imagine East Asians, Africans, so forth and so on. And the pattern you'll find is that we look at ourselves according to the best of our ideals, and then we look at everybody else according to the same more or less stereotypes. You know, whether we're talking about Chinese women and how they dress, or Muslim women and how they dress, or African women and how they dress. Um, so, so that I mean, essentially means that uh, uh, either I can focus on representation. Uh, that's not as important to me unless. Uh, uh, the representation is not focused on how a person looks as opposed to their character. 
right? Mm. So, so one of the, the most recent projects I've been working on, um, this, this TV show that's coming out next week, inshallah, Jack Ryan um, on, oh, on yeah. Amazon Prime. So, so they contacted me a couple of years ago um, to, because they wanted to have you know, a sensitive depiction of Muslims. Right. And, and so some of, that, uh, some of that discussion was about uh, just cultural elements and authenticity. And I also pushed this notion of you know, how do we depict uh, integrity in the way people conduct themselves. Right. It's one thing to to say Muslims are nice and and that's uh, important, but it's another thing to speak of our population as people of integrity. You know, like the prophet may peace be upon him said, I didn't come except to perfect character. I think that is when we speak of representation. If that's the core of the representation we have, then I think that's a success. But I think we're far away from that right now. Right. Nevertheless, uh, one thing that is depicted even in the most negative depictions of us in terms of savagery is that there is some sort of integrity or honor in the way we do things, even though it's the wrong side of morality, meaning we're killing people. Mm. But the point is that uh, the default notion is that even Muslims who, who are willing to, to kill, they're also willing to die. And, and that's a very skewed version of morality, but it is still a type of sense that, okay, Muslims really do practice what they preach. Yeah, full commitment. Exactly. And, uh, and right now that's a negative, but I don't think that's too hard, inshallah, to flip it into a positive. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, most representations that, that I see, they, lacked, they lack very much uh, context mm -hmm. or development as to why a person got to the mm -hmm. position that they're in. You know, mm -hmm. how they got their worldview, how was that, how were they shaped? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, I think that will go a long way mm -hmm. in terms of uh, sensitizing American viewers in particular, mm -hmm. or I'll just say Western viewers in particular, for those who are not familiar with mm -hmm. uh, Muslims outside the United States. Mm. Um, do you see that as being a, do you see anybody taking that kind of mantle up? Well, uh, this was something that I pushed really hard for for the Jack Ryan show, and uh, um, uh, I think you'll definitely see that in the sense that uh, the people, I mean, ultimately, Jack Ryan is a CIA agent again, going against Muslim terrorists. That's what the story is from start to finish. And, right. and so even then, I had, I had to debate with myself whether to participate. But what I do believe they've successfully, or I've been able to successfully convince them on, was to, to like you say, to give a context. Why are these people uh, trying to kill? And and so there's a whole lot of a lot of backstory that you're going to see in in the story of of the terrorists that that uh, will give a whole lot of sense to things uh, that I think people in America are probably still not ready for. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, race is probably the most impossible discussion to have in America to have as an honest discussion. And I think you know, not too far down the list is also American foreign policy and its con and its consequences on the world, and then the blowback that comes from it. So 9/11, the anniversary of 9/11 is coming. Um, you know, nearly 20 years after the fact, no one. I mean, by and large, a whole uh, sector of our population including those on the right and the left, are, are still not ready to have a discussion of why 9-11 happened, except to say it's this limited number of Muslims driven by theology or rage, and I think that misses the boat. Yeah, and, and still being unwilling to look at the, the facts, the numbers mm -hmm. that uh, generally it's, it is white men, mm -hmm. white Christian men, that are committing most acts of mm -hmm. uh, terror. Meaning, yeah, I mean, building on that, when I, uh, I sometimes get pulled into to uh, meetings with with federal agents and stuff, people who want advice on on what is today called counterterrorism work, and 100% of the meetings that I've ever had with them, I've always begun by saying, um, 
this is a tiny problem in the Muslim community, and it's especially a tiny problem compared to white supremacy and violence by white supremacists. Nevertheless, if you have one person who's self-identifying as Muslim and tries to kill people, we're talking about dead bodies, so I have to take it seriously. But it's still, compared to the problem of white supremacy, it's, it's, uh, it's minuscule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know when, I shouldn't say I don't know when, but I, I think that, um, I think that's a conversation that has to, has to keep being engaged. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a, there's an unwillingness, it feels like in general, mm -hmm. for, for most Americans, um, and that's cold, I'm saying, for, for white Americans, mm -hmm. right? But, but that's generally, there's generally, a, 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 you know, there's, there's a reticence, you mm -hmm. know, when it comes to seeing the, that, that truth. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I live in Orland Park, uh, and often when I, when I go to churches and such and people are asking me, you know, what are Muslims doing about ISIS, you know, I tell them, okay, uh, a couple of years ago when my father, my father, mashallah, you know, uh, Allah's will for him to make all of his five prayers every day at the, at the mosque. And one day, he, does, he didn't know this until he saw the news that as he was walking out of the mosque, somebody shot at the dome. And, and you could, you, I don't know if you can still see them, you can see the bullet holes inside the dome. And then that same day at, at Michael's uh, convenient or craft store, they had, you know, all the windows were plastered, of ca all the car windows were plastered with KKK flyers. And I tell people that, okay, the Klan is a bigger concern for me far and away than, than ISIS is. Uh, Absolutely. ISIS is 6,000 miles away. The right. Klan is literally in my neighborhood. Yeah, next door. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, we don't want to say next door. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, I mean, literally in my neighborhood, uh, mm -hmm. there, I mean, there are cars that still they have Confederate flags. And, and so that's Chicago. You know? And it doesn't get the attention. Mm -hmm. uh, that it deserves. Mm -hmm. So, and, I mean, the interesting thing is, some of it I, I get because the way you know, if if you know, uh, Muslim terrorism, so-called Muslim terrorism, didn't get all the news coverage, we would probably, we as Muslims, would probably not pay much attention to it. You know, here in Chicago, because it doesn't really affect us too much, and because right. we know that's like the exception. And so, the common white person understands or sees the Klan as the exception. Uh, what they don't uh, see is that it's much more of the norm than, for example, Muslim terrorism in America. And uh, many of us, our lives are directly under threat. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So as a chaplain. Yes, sir. Once again, introducing, um, well, not so much. Well, I'll ask, aside from the Muslim students that you um, that, that you advise and, and counsel, mm -hmm. uh, do you have non-Muslim students that come to you? Yeah, so about uh, so so Loyola undergrad has about 800 Muslims, give or take. Uh, um, about 15% of the people who visited me last year were, were non-Muslims, and so I actually have uh, two roles at Loyola. One is chaplain, the other one is just faculty teaching Islamic studies. Time-wise, however, the vast majority of it is is chaplaining. But but quite a, a few Muslims, uh, non-Muslims, do come to me, whether they're people who self-identify as Hindu or people who have no belief. Uh, um, you know, some Catholics or people who regard themselves as lapsed Catholics will also come see me, you know. So, yeah, uh, 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 non-Muslims do come and see me. Now, are they coming for, um, are they coming for, uh, they have questions, is it, 
I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to think what is the proper, what's the correlate for uh, pastoral care? Mm -hmm. uh, is it, would that be the same thing for that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, most of their questions often are, are the same as uh, the, those that are, the Muslims are coming with. So the Muslims who are visiting me with for pastoral care, visiting me for pastoral care. Mm -hmm. Some are coming with faith problems, some are coming with family or personal problems, some are coming with academic problems, and likewise for, for the non Muslim students who are visiting me as well. Sometimes the non Muslim students are coming to me because. Um, they want to try something different. I mean, I had a student who was Wiccan who, who, uh. who came to me, and I asked, you know, why, why did, did you come see me? And she said, you're the closest thing I can think of, the, of someone who can understand, you know, my outlook versus, you know, a, a Jesuit priest or something like that. Uh, more often than not, they're coming at by, as referrals by their Muslim friends, or they may have taken classes with me academically. Mm. So they already have a relationship with me. What's one of the most, um, I guess, challenging aspects of being a chaplain? And having 800 mm -hmm. students. Uh, I think uh, originally when I started, it was uh, keeping my own boundaries in terms of how much time I would give. So I used to allow myself to be accessible 24-7. And that took a massive toll on me just in terms of brain, spray, brain space, stress, uh, stress, as well as just uh, uh, exhaustion. Uh, the uh, overall since then i'll now inshallah be beginning my fifth year uh, as an official chaplain there uh, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah and and the uh, overall uh, i don't have formal training as 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 a pastor uh, i've i've been taught various traditional islamic sciences including those that would be in the realm of the sufis which would be our closest to to psychology or things like that uh, but the question is, do I, uh, when students are coming to me, am I actually having an impact on them beyond them feeling good about themselves, right? That they have somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a challenge because, uh, I mean, I even prescribe for my students to always aim really, really high in their, in their big dreams. And so I also have big ambitions for what I hope to get accomplished, uh, but I don't know how low I fall, uh, how much I fall short in terms of uh, the process of trying to provide healing, healing for students. So is healing is the, is healing your goal or um, what what's your what's the measure of success for you? Uh, I think the, the the well for healing is definitely a a, a major goal or steps towards healing uh, or steps or getting a person to be self empowered to to work on their own healing once they're out of my universe meaning beyond Loyola. Uh, the steps of uh, measurement of success, some of the indicators would be that students are coming back to me. That would be one. Uh, I've now been in academics long enough that students will come back to me years after the fact. And, and so, so I read that to say that, okay, uh, whatever impact I've had on their lives, uh, at least it's something positive. You know, the way that we all look back and any one of us can name a couple of teachers that have always had impact on us. And, and so... Uh, that can be a measurement of success. I mean, ultimately, uh, this type of work, we're not really going to find out until we're on the other side. And mm. so, so, so this is the best that I can come up with, you know, so far now. So. Okay. A lot of it is also just what I learned in the process, too. Oh, really? You know, the way, the way it happens um, is when I'm going through a struggle, it just so happens that the, that the students that the divine sends to my office seem to have almost identical problems. And, really? And that happens over and over again. And, and so it's almost like the divine is forcing me to also work on my own healing, too. So is there a kind of a mutual, um, or are you working out your own 
yes, problem while helping them work theirs out as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. You know, I, I do make the, you know, you, you made the point about being unassuming or something. I think yeah. part of uh, the nature of my work is that I have to be real. Uh, I, I definitely try not to give the students the impression that I have figured out the, the problems of life. Rather, uh, or a way I put it to my daughters, the way my daughters are learning how to be 15 and 18, I'm learning how to be 46. You know, I kind of know how to be 18. I kind of remember how to be 18, but 46 is something brand new for me. You know what I'm saying? And so, so it's, it's a different set of struggles than I had when I was 36. And so I have to, uh, uh, I go through my own struggles. So do they do see multiple sides of me. You know? We need sound effects. That was, <laughs> we do. We need, that, that was like, that was, that was a bomb right there. Okay, so I'm a, probably not the best word to use, but yeah. I don't care. <laughs> that was an explosive <laughs> point. You just terrorized my thinking. <laughs> no, that, that was a great point. No, I have to go back. You know, I have, I have daughters also, three yeah, girls. And I have to go back, and I'm going to share that with them. Well, it's all yours. You know, I probably stole it from somebody like, else. So. <laughs> look, yeah. hey, hey I, I haven't figured this out either. Yeah. Right? Just trying to work out 45. Exactly. You know, don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, uh, I remember uh, as a young man just thinking about, you know, uh, uh, having a bone to pick with my parents because I assumed they had all of life figured out. And I, weren't, I was wondering to myself, why aren't they being super awesome, amazing, you know, to whatever I imagined that should have been. But no, they're yeah. figuring out life at their end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this progressive, um, constant journey. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. So um, as faculty, yes, so sir. you're teaching Islamic studies. Mm hmm uh, is that, um, uh, I mean, which was it like 100 level, 300? Um, so all, all across the board. Uh, okay. The class I teach most common <clears throat> is, is called Introduction to, to Islam. Actually, I think now they just call it Islam, but uh, it's essentially Introduction to Islam, mm -hmm. which is a, a core theology course. So, so students at Loyola have to take, I think, two or three theology classes, of which one has to be related to Christianity and the others can be anything else. So mm -hmm. quite a few people take classes uh, on, on Islam to okay. fulfill that core. Yeah. All right, Radio Islam family, you all don't know this. Um, I've told you AIC is a institution that is near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. um, but our brother here, Omar, was one of my teachers. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. And our brother Tariq was, uh, was a good student, mashallah. <laughs> yeah. Alhamdulillah. The class, um, I think it was Introduction to Quran. Yeah. And you did something that I found really uh, unique. Mm. Um, you know, you spent our lives reading and studying. Mm -hmm but had never looked at the Quran in terms of um, looking at it like, like a movie or yes, a play. Yeah. And I thought that was, that was, that mm -hmm. was something that just really stuck with me. It mm -hmm. changed. It, it definitely added to the way I look at, uh, at, look at Revelation, these stories. Hopefully, hopefully in a positive way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, talk, talk a bit about that. Mm -hmm. uh, because you mentioned, you said you, you, you were not really all that... Uh, good with writing prose. Mm -hmm. You had to go back to and, and write things out kind of like mm -hmm. in, in a play form. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that is just kind of a central part of? Uh, I think so. I mean, I was, uh, I, I went to Columbia, Columbia College for, for or graduated from there for, uh, with a film degree uh, uh, about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> somewhere in there, or maybe uh, just before there, I was an extra yeah, yeah, and and that movie specifically, I think, was Natural Born Killers. So, so not the most Islamic. Woody Harrelson. Yes, yeah, Oliver Stone, Woody Harrelson. Yeah. yeah. So we, we were all sitting in Stateville Prison, and and I'm 20 something years old. And I decided for myself that uh, 
I can't, how can I call myself a Muslim if I don't know what the Quran says? And so I decided while sitting there that I have to read the translation cover to cover. Okay. And it took me a lot of effort just to find a translation I could read and, and that I could comprehend again, because a lot of this is that my struggle with, with reading. Mm -hmm. And so I tried Abdul Yusuf Ali and Piktal and all the standard translations. And then I was able to read uh, Muhammad Asad's translation. I would just take it, you know, passage by passage over the course of, of the next year. And so I'm studying the Quran at the same time I'm in film school. And so the two uh, very much fed off of each other. And uh, if we skip the fact of, of you know, how they're structured, both uh, uh, the Quran or religion in general is telling us this is how, this is what reality is and this is how reality works. And we're going to watch a movie you know, you're suspending your disbelief by, by entering the world of the film, whether we're talking about something like Black Panther or we're talking about, about some rom-com like, um, you know, Crazy Rich Asians. They're mm -hmm. saying, okay, enter our reality and, and, and go through it. And then a movie, especially in contrast to other, other arts and crafts, is a lot like uh, the structure of a Suda in the sense that you're going to talk about this and suddenly you're going to shift and talk about that and then suddenly you're going to talk about something else and your brain is automatically making links. So you're watching a movie and your story is taking place in this person's house and then immediately next scene is taking place five years in the past in someone else's house and then, and then you're moving into the future but you're understanding the logic just by, by, by the juxtaposition and that's very much how all the surahs work. Right, especially al-Baqarah, going from here to here to here to here with a thread from start to finish. Yeah. Mm. So, was your goal? Um, so, while you were in film school, mm -hmm. so were you? Was your plan to make films? So, I originally went into film school for for cinematography, and so this uh, this is uh, uh, mid early '90s, and. Uh, this is right around the time we started becoming the new enemy. So the Soviet Union had fallen, and these documentaries against Muslims were coming out. One big one was in PBS called Jihad in America. And they're basically saying, okay, the terrorists are here, and they're trying to take over, and all that stuff. And I realized that, okay, there aren't too many other Muslims here. There are a few who aren't really practicing, but, you know, we're all at different levels. Um, and I realized I had to learn all the different aspects of, of the whole filmmaking process, um, just because of the time and place that I'm in right now as, as a Muslim. Yeah, but originally it was for cinematography. And I also realized that I was going to cinematography purely for ego, for narcissistic reasons, in the sense that look at this beautiful shot that I made. You know, but uh, everything else was more related to the joy of, of the field. But, but everyone appreci appreciates uh, cinematography. If, if, if Even if they don't good. realize who, yeah. what aspect, how oh, that totally. came about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned one uh, Black Panther. Yes, that sir. was one of... I really appreciate the, the scene. Yeah, I mentioned on purpose because I know someone here has seen it like five times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep, five <laughs> on the head. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was something I really I loved mm -hmm. uh, the, the way they just kind of played with the the color palette. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when he's seeing his father, mm -hmm. I was like, man, this is some great stuff. Yes. I wish I knew how to do that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, all of this. This is. Uh, it's literally, uh, for lack of a better word, I almost want to call it a science, but they're just really, really common techniques. And, and so there's a language to, to filmmaking that if you want a person to feel a, pers a particular way, you put this on the screen or put this type of music. So like if you make the music really high, that makes people feel almost like sympathetic. If you make it low, like dun, 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 then it makes people feel, feel like a threat is coming. Right. And cinematography works exactly the same way. Mm. Yeah. So 
tell us, because uh, we're kind of meandering around. Yeah, of course. Um, you know what? Uh, we're, we're, get, we're, getting the, we're getting the hook. Okay. So what we're going to do, Radio Sound Family, the impressive one, Yip Green Bake, he has told us that it is time for the for breaks. We're going to go ahead and take a break. But we'll, we will be back in just a minute. This is Radio Islam. Inshallah. <laughs> Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. The Syrian Community Network with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Hey America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America in your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember to keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You will find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast, right? Because if, if this is your first time, you have missed quite a bit. So you want to go back subscribe if you're on itunes tune in google play soundcloud we're at, at, at radio islam usa that's at radio islam usa we have omar muzaffar he is the muslim chaplain at loyola university um, here in chicago uh, as well as a uh, film critic for roger ebert.com and the uh the writer for 
just relations with the uh, Chicago Sun-Times. Yes, sir. So before we went to break, uh, I was going to ask you about how, give us, tell us, how did you um, become a, a critic with, um, with uh, Robert e Roger Ebert's mm. uh, dot com, Roger Ebert dot com? How, how did that happen? So some 25, 30 years ago, I took uh, these classes with Roger Ebert called Film Study with Roger Ebert. And he would pick a director, and over the course of, of a semester, we just watch all of the director's movies and, and just discuss very, very freely. And, and I took that class uh, a number of times, uh, meaning there's a different director at each class, uh, and then that was it. And uh, in, that was in the early 90s, and then around 2007, 2008, um, um, he, he went through some really serious surgeries and he lost his ability to speak. So his wife Chaz got him to start writing a blog. And then I would just skim through the blog. And he actually had one blog about a fatwa um, in India against terrorism that he, he just decided to write about. And so then I posted a comment, thanks for this. I was your student way back when. And, and then he spoke as though he re remembered me. I don't think he actually remembered me. And, <laughs> And, and so I would just participate on his, uh, on his blog as a commenter. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he'd just send me a note, uh, uh, an email as a compliment or something. And then he got the idea to have uh, these film critics from throughout the world, from Turkey, from Mexico, from the Philippines, uh, to, to write. And, and so he pulled me in to be uh, one of those writers. And I said, unless you consider the south side of Chicago to be a foreign country, which many people do, um, I don't think it counts. But he says, no, we'll just say you're born wherever, and this is my blog. I can do whatever I want. And I said, sure. And so he just gave us free reign, write whatever you want, whenever you want. And, and uh, then he started getting a lot of attacks um, because of my posts, um, whether I wrote about Islam or not. Uh, there are a lot of people who are just viciously uh, trolling. And so then I actually cut down writing because I didn't want to give him a headache. And he said, okay, just write whatever you feel you need to write, whatever you want to. Sorry. And uh, my phone likes to talk sometimes. And uh, write whatever you want, whenever you want, and just let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. And so it reached the point where I was writing for him weekly. Uh, after he died, my last communication with him was probably a week or so um, before he passed away. Um, then I couldn't write for a long time. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I've always had a struggle with writing anyway, mm -hmm. um, but I just literally couldn't write, and I had to, like, force myself to start getting into the habit. And so now, as of late, I've been posting maybe once a month or so, and I'm hoping to get back to the weekly thing. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a writing process? Uh, I sort of have one right now because uh, I write uh, on a I'm trying to write on a regular basis a couple of things. So one is the Just Relations series, which which you mentioned, and then the articles for him, and then primarily for for my students, I write these chaplain letters uh, where I just talk about whatever's going on in life. Yes. And so so the way it'll go, the week will begin day one. I'll try to write like about a hundred words. And that lays out the core of it. And then day two, uh, bring it up to 300 words. And then day three, try to finish it. Day four, try to revise. And that's been my routine lately. Yeah. Now, now, do you self-edit self or do you have? That's me. It's all me. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Which it makes it very hard because, I mean, you really got to go through with a fine-tooth comb to find everything. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, I lean on when, when I do write. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a sister who she's just a... She's awesome oh, as, as an editor. So, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> good editor is a great thing. Yeah, yeah. 
But, yeah, uh, I should say for for the Sun Times, I edit, and then they actually, you know, then the Sun Times editors then do the actual real editing. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, so tell us about Just Relations. What's mm -hmm. the What's the premise uh, behind the column? So, a colleague of mine, a rabbi here in Chicago, he uh, he had someone in his congregation who used to do uh, consulting work in the Middle East and wanted to do something for America, and and so he went to his rabbi uh, to come up with ideas. And the rabbi's trying to think of ideas, and then like a couple of weeks later, the uh, the the gentleman, his name is Edwin Eisendrath, he came back and said, "Oh, I just bought the Sun Times," and <laughs> so that surprised the, the the rabbi, and and so but he still like wanted he just to, went to Walmart and just that's that's how it sounds. Toothpaste, yeah. right? Yeah, kind of like the way I buy flaming hot Cheetos. But so <laughs> so he uh, South Africa. <laughs> so the. Uh, the rabbi uh, came up with this idea of have, bringing in some religious leaders mm -hmm. to just write on a regular basis, uh, whatever it is related to our own particular communities. And so he, he uh, Seth Limmer is the rabbi, a good guy. He, uh, he, he, he writes about things related to his congregation. Uh, there's a number of different pastors, and I'm essentially the Muslim guy. Okay. Yeah. And how long has that been going on? It started, uh, the actual first post was printed, I want to say, in January of this year, 2018. Uh, I forgot how much earlier we actually th first spoke about it. Uh, it might have been 2016 or early 2017 or th something. And um, uh, uh, in theory, each of the six of us are supposed to be writing uh, one a week. Uh, but it, most of it comes down to me, uh, this one uh, pastor. Her name is Teresa Deer and uh, uh, Rabbi Seth. I mean, there's a few other powerhouses like Otis Moss, I'm sure you're familiar with yeah. him. He, he, he writes occasionally um, and, and a few others, but they're not as frequent. So mine wind up being uh, posted once every three weeks or so. And, and what do you cover? Uh, anything uh, related to Islam and Muslims that's also related to whatever is going on in the world. So uh, my next piece is related to Eid and Hajj, but also observing how it seems as though Saudi Arabia seems to be getting more open. They're, they've now, they're not having movie theaters and they're finally letting women drive, while at the same time, we as a society are getting more closed. And, and I just find that to be a strange uh, contrast that we probably never would have thought would happen you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. When you say we as a society, do you mean we as a Muslim society? Uh, in we America? being the United States. Hmm. Yeah. How so? So, I mean, think about it from the way we're blocking immigration and, and oh. you know, there's all the conversation about walls and such. Okay. Yeah. 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 So. I should have seen that one coming. Yeah. yeah. That that kind of hit me right in the face. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this isn't to say that, that you know, Saudi Arabia is, is automatically taking a positive direction, but it is a strange contrast in terms of what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Well, a change in it, I should say, a change in the majority mm -hmm. uh, in the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly could have an impact uh, on policy. Absolutely. So, but, but it's still the unresolved, it's still the can that's been kicked down the road mm -hmm. for the past 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I think as a country, uh, we really owe it to ourselves mm -hmm. um, to, to really, to, you know, bring some finality, mm -hmm. you know, to it, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you also make a point that's sort of implicit in my Sun-Times articles, but probably everything that I do, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, very often uh, people try to present Muslims, Muslims in America, as foreigners. Yeah. And even though, you know, a great percentage of, of Muslims in America are indigenous, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I try to speak in a language to say that um, we're here and we're not going anywhere. 
Right. right? And so yeah. uh, you can keep insulting us. That's not, that just frees us to say whatever it is we want then. Do, do you feel like some Muslims have the uh, have this disposition where they feel like they have to take on this turn the other cheek type of um, uh, character or response to some of the vitriol that, that comes out as uh, opposed to, you know, firing back. Mm -hmm. I, th uh, I think that's definitely true. Uh, I think uh, applying turn the other cheek when you have no power is different than applying turn the other cheek when you have power. And if you're, if you're compelling your people to forgive when they're in a position without power, I think that just uh, further disempowers them. And yeah. I do think a lot of people in our community do take that approach. Yeah. Some of it is just out of fear. Like, you know, what are people going to do in response? But uh, that, I think, is also an, uh, I'm not criticizing anybody in particular, but I think that is a problem of Iman. Mm -hmm. I mean, Allah Ta'ala says very directly, fear me, not fear, fear, don't fear them. And, and so it is the design of our society. And, and you find the same thing in the Bible that, all right, if you are a follower of the divine, then you are going to be hated. Mm -hmm. right? We're getting hated for free. I mean, we're not preaching all that much, and still people are giving <laughs> us, you know, the, 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 the hate. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, we don't even we don't even have to make visits. Yeah, exactly. Uh, people come to us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let, let let me go back a bit because um, uh, film and, and theater that's one of my my, my big interests. Nice. Uh, yeah, I've um, had a burgeoning career. Not really. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Just a lot of time in community theater. Wow. Well, but. But um, and then Denzel Washington took over. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. He just yeah. beat me to it. Yeah. But um, so you took a class where you where you studied the films of one director, and then you took another class, mm -hmm. same one. Do you have a favorite director? Uh, that that evolves, and uh, it also can be certain aspects. So uh, a friend of mine earlier today was asking me for my like favorite Spike Lee movies, and so so I was in college in the early '90s, and so I used to back when I used to live, breathe, eat movies. Uh, Spike Lee was very much at the center of all that. Mm -hmm. So Spike Lee in his early peak, which would be Do the Right Thing. Um, uh, Mo Better Blues, Malcolm X, Jungle Fever. I thought that's one of the, the great periods of, of filmmaking. Um, you know, there's uh, when Martin Scorsese talks religion. I think it's I think it's awesome. Like the movie Silence is is fantastic. Or when he mixes religion with his mob movies. Um, there's a lesser known filmmaker. His name is Charles Burnett, who makes also really really excellent stories. I I mean, if there's religion somewhere in it, then I love it. Um, he he has a film. Uh, from the early 1990s called To Sleep With Anger, which, which is uh, taking place in Atlanta, and it's about this African-American family in Atlanta where this uncle, this, this uncle comes over and he's just creating a mess, and he's sort of like a metaphor for, for, for the devil. Um, other current filmmakers uh, that, that I like, I mean, the standard people everybody else likes, like, like Steven Spielberg, of course, when he's very good. Um, uh, Francis Coppola, of course, you know, the Godfather, the Apocalypse Now movies. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it will also be specific pieces of, of, of a filmmaker. I mean, Ryan Coogler, uh, I think, is just uh, off the charts amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Fruitvale Station, first time I saw it, I mean, it felt like someone just punched a sledgehammer to my chest, and I watched that over and over again. Yeah. And then Creed was easily one of the best of all the Rocky movies, and it was so good, I'm actually not 
looking forward to the next one. Even the <laughs> idea is cool, but I don't know if you can, without Ryan Coogler, if you can make it that amazing, you know. And then, of course, Black Panther was Hold amazing. Hold on, who, who's directing it? Uh, I forgot the name of the person. Uh, he's a person, uh, uh, the director and the writer, I think, again, both African-American, and they worked on one of the, the big current TV shows, but I forgot who they are. Mm. Yeah. All right, check that out. You know, yeah. I mean, Ryan Coogler is uh, someone who actually gets me excited when I'm hearing that he has a film coming out. You know, just some of the, speaking of Ryan Coogler, yeah. uh, just speaking of the, the back, behind the scenes mm -hmm. um, footage that they showed where he was explaining, uh, explaining the shots. Oh, oh, that's just such a joy, man. Yeah. And that to me, um, and I mean, if you're a casual, mm -hmm. if you're a casual movie watcher, Mm -hmm. then you're not going to, you're not, maybe you won't really appreciate it mm -hmm. as much, but to understand what a director does. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said like every, like every piece of clothing. Yeah. He patterns, gets really into the philosophy of everything. Yeah. yeah. The colors, um, you know, I mean, everything just mm -hmm. went all together and how everything was a metaphor, the way people were fighting, what they fought with. Yes. Yeah. I was just like, wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, and uh, I'm sure if he did that, even with Creed, uh, we may not notice all the particulars he puts for Rocky and for, for, for Adonis Creed and the others. I'm sure he went through at least the same amount of thinking. Yeah. You know? And that just makes me think like, okay, I need to go back and watch. Yeah. Watch it again. Absolutely. Just to see. Yeah. yeah. So is there, do you have a, I know you mentioned, you know, uh, aside from Ryan Coogler, is there a favorite movie? That also varies. So, so okay. So, there's the movies that you know, as a Muslim, you just have to have at the top of your list. So, Malcolm X is going to be there. You know, the message is going to be there. Right, right. Right. So, there's those movies that just have to be there. We're going to put those to the side for a moment. And then, for being my age, you know, like the star, or the early Star Wars films have to be on that list and such. And of course, the Rocky movies and all that. Mm -hmm. Having said all that. Um, I really like uh, one of my favorite movies is Heat, uh, Al Pacino, Al Pacino Rob De Niro, yeah. uh, Michael Mann from the 1990s, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon would be up there. Um, uh, what else would be uh, on that list? Uh, Fruitvale Station might actually be uh, on my list of, of my all-time favorite movies. It's uh, I really feel it's that good, mm -hmm. even aside from the story of Oscar Grant, which on its own is it's a it's a huge story. But he made it. The movie was a very like a literary story, like it's the last day in the life. Right. of this person um, um, and then I mean there's there's a lot of movies from like this past year that I thought were, were, were outstanding Black Klansman was fantastic um, Blind Spotting was amazing really let's let's go back to Black Klansman yes sir Good. because uh, I may go see it tonight. okay so yeah, I think you should <laughs> yeah. um, what 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 stood out to you about it? well um, <clears throat> When Spike Lee is good, he's very, very good. Sometimes when I watch Spike Lee movies, I feel like you know he's like called it in. He, he it didn't seem like he put in very much effort. But this is a superbly polished film with all kind of all kinds of subtleties that I think many people won't know. And I intentionally, when I first saw it, I went to like I, I want to. I'm going to watch it a second time at some point, inshallah. Mm -hmm. I went to like the, the the whitest possible place I could find near me. So I went to New Lenox. And okay. There, so for those who know Chicago, and yeah. so there's a dude who's sitting in front of me, who look like the people on the screen, and I'm talking about clans members, yeah. and so that already added a level of tension. <laughs> uh, but so so like he he's a master of making a film that is entertaining, very smart, and very very sharp in its its commentary, without having to be over the top. 
Mm-hmm. So Sorry to Bother You is a movie that a lot of people like that for me, I actually got kind of bored because it was just so in your face. Mm-hmm. Like I probably even agree with a lot of the politics of the filmmaker of Boots Riley, but he just like really, really gets in your face as opposed to Spike Lee, which is taking you on this journey to, to, to first and foremost enjoy the story. And then he has all this really, really heavy, heavy commentary. And just he takes what Spike Lee does that Martin Scorsese does a little bit, but Spike Lee especially does is that while the story's going along, he's going to pause with these these images that don't take away, but, you know, he's also making heavy commentary. So you're going to see this uh, when, when you see the movie, inshallah, when, when, uh, when Stokely Carmichael's speaking mm-hmm. and, 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 and Spike does these, these uh, shows these various images that a normal filmmaker is not going to do. But uh, I won't. I won't even spoil it yet for you. But uh, you know, he's making you feel certain things mm. that I think you know he's he's a master at. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've heard good things about it. What well, I should say, I've heard more good than I have negative. There are there are a lot of criticisms of it that, that are valid. But uh, I uh, right now in my list of movies that I've seen in 2018, I have it at the top of the list right now. Okay. I'm literally saying it's the best movie I've seen this year. Now I've heard I've heard people talking about what is the movie about a. Um, Asians is in the oh, crazy rich Asians. Yeah. Yes, that's very entertaining. Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah. Now I've heard like a, a, a critical type of analysis uh, around it, saying mm-hmm. that the depictions were not they were lacking substance or whatever. But but that also when you make those kind of uh, statements, taking you have to take into account what is the goal of mm-hmm. the the filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, is it to actually make a statement? Is it just to be entertaining? Um, what 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 can you say to that? Well, I mean, for me, for every movie, the the first question, uh, no matter what the topic is, what the commentary is, does it make me want to find out what happens in the next scene? Okay, can I predict what's going to happen in the next scene? Mm. So if I can't predict what's going to happen in the next scene, but I want to know, that's a successful movie, right. right? If I don't find myself looking at my clock, my watch throughout the the film, that's a successful movie, right? Most of the movies, we can probably predict what's going to happen. Yeah, right. And so, so when I'm watching a Spike Lee movie, I'm not watching a movie on race. I'm watching a Spike Lee movie. And he most often talks about race, right? right? And so Crazy Rich Asians, uh, first and foremost for me, is a vastly entertaining movie. Mm. It's very funny. It's full of, full of heart, right? Um, and then on top of that, yeah, it's, it's all about representation of, of East Asians in general, Chinese in particular. And, and it's interesting because the director, uh, he doesn't make movies that, that show you know, Chinese people in, in a happy light. And there's this famous clip at some film festival where, where this white guy gets up and says, you know, I wish you would make movies that are more sympathetic in their depictions of Chinese people. And then Roger Ebert gets up and starts shouting at him saying, no, he can make whatever movies he wants. Right. And and so that's exactly it. Like uh, 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 like if you replaced everybody who's Chinese in the film with any other race, the movie would still be a very very entertaining movie, full of heart. But the person who made it, or the writer, or the people involved, very knew very well the characters that they're depicting, and so it also came across as a very very rich film. Mm-hmm. The closest thing that I can think of of another ethnicity would be for like South Asians, like Monsoon Wedding, or something like that. And what's common among all of them is that you have uh, a story that's taking place outside the United States, but it's effectively an American movie. And you have this whole mix of characters, and that one is it's Indians from all over the place, and here it's it's Chinese from all over the place. And and uh, it it's it was so fun. Uh, I actually want to see it again at some point. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, it got me all feeling the feelies that a good romantic <laughs> comedy should do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
One of the I know we're getting into uh, our, our wine. Oh, I, I should also say, by the way, I saw that movie in New Lennox as well. And a lot of people were laughing in the theater, and there were a lot of points where I was the only guy laughing because I think I was picking up on jokes that oh, really? you know, Mr. and Mrs. White were not picking up on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, see that that's, that's kind of the question I was going to ask mm -hmm. is that um, when we're watching movies about ethnicities other mm -hmm. than our own, yeah, um, do you think that? Maybe folks are asking for too much mm -hmm. other than to, to simply be entertained as mm -hmm. opposed to looking for uh, an introduction into the subtleties, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> into the diversity of, of, of what each, you know, group brings. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, that can come from the fellow audience members. So like I was saying, I want to watch Black Klansman a second time. Yeah. And that the second time I'll probably go to Chatham to watch it. Okay. Right, you know, so to contrast the, the two different experiences, mm -hmm. had I had time, I would have watched uh, both different places when it first opened, you know, to get the fresh uh, reactions. But the point is that uh, when you're watching a movie uh, from a different world, you there might be a lot of subtleties you may not pick up on, but someone else who's also watched it can can sort of guide you through that process. Mm -hmm. You know, like what I what I like doing with with students um, um, is when we'll watch a, a scene. And I'll ask them, what do they see? And I'll share, what do I see, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think a lot of that richness can come. Uh, to demand the artist to do that really depends on the artist. You know, some artists are saying, okay, here's, here's, the, here's the work. You make of it what you will. Right. So, like, there's a line, trust the art, not the artist. Mm. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, it looks like we are there. <laughs> okay. I survived. I really. Or, or you survived. Yeah, I survived, right? <laughs> I, I really appreciate you taking time to, uh, no, to be it's, here. It's, it's my privilege. Yeah, it's yeah. been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, Radio Islam family, our guest, Omar Mozaffer, you can uh, find his column in the Sun-Times, uh, Just Relations. He's also, as I mentioned, a, a film critic for RogerEbert.com. And if you just happen to be going by uh, Loyola and you've got a problem, uh, mm -hmm. he might be in the office. Come on by, inshallah. Yeah. <laughs> Come see him. Yeah. It's been a pleasure, as always. Uh, we want to go ahead and thank our engineers right now over at WCEV. Thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Kalameen. Our executive producer is Abdulmalik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. I think we've said it all. So now we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.